Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 112 of the podcast for February 10th, 2011. My guest today is Nada Grundin. She is the author of the book, The Pittsburgh Way to Efficient Healthcare, Improving Patient Care Using Toyota-Based Methods. Now, today we're going to talk about her experiences with the Pittsburgh Regional Health Initiative and her small world connection to somebody who's very well known in the aviation world. And we're going to talk about connections between lean, aviation safety, and checklists. And the common theme that this isn't just about the tool or the artifact, as Nada calls it, the checklist, that it's also primarily about culture change. So this is the first of two podcasts that we're going to do in the next couple of weeks. You can go to leanblog.org slash 112 to post comments on this episode, or you can go to leanpodcast.org for all past episodes. Nada, I want to welcome you to the podcast, and thank you for taking time to talk to us today. Well, thank you, Mark. It's great to be here. Now, if you could start, you know, maybe by introducing yourself um, to the listeners, uh, a little bit about your background and, and talk about your book and your work with Lean, I think that would be helpful. Well, sure. I had the great good fortune 10 years ago, as a matter of fact, to have been hired by the Pittsburgh Regional Health Initiative, which was a very fledgling enterprise at that time, run through the Jewish Healthcare Foundation in Pittsburgh, where I lived. Um, and at that, at that time, we were still in the uh, throes of trying to persuade people that using an industrial model would work at all in healthcare, that it even had a place. Well, the leader of our organization happened to be Paul O'Neill, who was the CEO of Alcoa. And subsequently, uh, within a couple of weeks of my coming to work there, he became the Secretary of the Treasury. And so suddenly, um, interest really peaked among the hospitals across Pittsburgh, wanting to try this Toyota thing, whatever it was. And the fact that it was offered through a neutral nonprofit organization like PRHI um, allowed people to think, hey, this, you know, this at least is non-competitive and something I might want to try. So my job as the, as the writer was to go from organization to organization and document, is this working? Is this, is this Toyota business going to work in healthcare? So for five years, I went uh, from hospital to hospital documenting and writing um, articles for the Pittsburgh Regional Health Initiative, the PRHI newsletter, and then was approached by uh, Productivity Press in 2006 saying, hey, look, we've been looking at your newsletter. We think that you should consolidate the best of your stories here and uh, create a book. And so I did, and that's called The Pittsburgh Way to Efficient Healthcare. That book came out in um, late uh, 2000, late 2007, early 2008. And it just compiles the stories, the actual on the ground, what it looked like, the good, the bad, and the ugly of implementing lean in these different hospitals across Pittsburgh. Now, from that experience, can you share maybe one example of the good? And then since you mentioned ugly, it's always tempting to ask what what was uh, ugly. You know, can, can you give maybe one example of each from what you documented? Well, I would say probably the most significant thing, and I didn't know as I was documenting it that it would be so. You know that very often hospitals will invite you in to clean out their closets and uh, fix up their rooms and everything peripheral to the actual healthcare process. I think the most significant and interesting work that I was able to profile was the work of Dr. Richard Shannon at Allegheny General Hospital when he reduced central line infections over a period of 90 days to zero in the two ICUs that he uh, had jurisdiction over. And that was the first, um, and, and I think still one of the best 
um, descriptions of using lean in a clinical process to bring to bring a, a, a real benefit to patients right now. So that was that was a really uh, really great one. And then some of the difficulties. Uh, one of the stories I wasn't able to um, to to get into the book, but it'll just uh, highlight some of the difficulties in in implementing lean. I told a story about um, a, a, one of the receptionists at a mental health facility who would go to work on Monday mornings and sit in her car and she would weep because she knew she was going to have to deny people getting in to see a doctor right away who were very sick. That was before the lean improvement. Um, they worked very hard to come up with a way to get some open access scheduling so that people who really needed an appointment could get right in. Um, some of those human stories, I think, are moving. Right. And yeah, and I can not relate. I mean, not from a firsthand standpoint of, uh, of sitting in the car and weeping, but I mean, I've, I've seen at hospitals all over the country. I mean, this isn't just a Pittsburgh problem of, of people that have gotten burned out. They've gotten frustrated, um, from the waste and, and things that we can thankfully address through lean. I'm sure you saw a lot of that too, but the, the improvement to, to help address that. Absolutely. And that was the really heartening thing. Occasionally people would find it difficult, even though they knew the way we're currently doing things doesn't, isn't working out very well. It's hard to let go of it. And it's, it's a very emotional thing to say, how oh, we're going to do it differently. And all of this wonderful, um, workaround that I've gotten so good at, we're not going to need that particular skill anymore because they're making it easier for me. So there's some interesting aspects of it that I noted. Yeah. Now, Moving ahead, you know, a little bit after from when you completed that book, and I mean, it's, it's, uh, I want to talk about the what turned out to be a really small world connection. So as we were talking um, before, when, when your book came out, um, you, it allowed you to reconnect with some people, including somebody I think all of our listeners, um, at, at least, well, not, not just in the U.S., but around the world would um, would know. Um, tell us that story about reconnecting with uh, – uh, somebody who became suddenly high profile. Well, it was, it was very wonderful when I, when I wrote the book and the book got out, I would hear, I heard from people I hadn't heard from in a long time. Well, my husband, Larry was a, is now retired, but he was an airline pilot with us airways for decades. And I heard from one of his colleagues and uh, the, the guy wrote to me uh, through my web page and he said, Hey, look, I don't know if you remember me, but I remember you from a union meeting that we attended together and I've flown with Larry and uh, it turned out this guy was one of these genius types. He has two master's degrees, one of them in human factors from Purdue. And the way that he came in touch, he said, I, I see that you've written a book. A professor in human factors from San Jose State has sent me your book. And I realized I know you and I've flown with Larry. And um, that was how we began the correspondence. That this was in uh, early 2008, right after the book came out. So we corresponded all year long and he kept saying, you know, I would like to start a business. I think there's such um, synergy between aviation safety and patient safety. I think that we could learn together. Well, I kept emailing introductions to him to various people in the lean movement and here and there and folks that I knew over the years, uh, having worked at the initiative. And boy, you know, nobody really wanted to talk to just some pilot about safety because there are a lot of, a lot of really smart pilots that know a lot about safety. And then, um, it, it's just hard to describe the <laughs> gobsmacking surprise of, uh, January 15th, 2009, when I was watching CNN, I saw that 
the guy that landed that A320 on the Hudson River was none other than my correspondent, Sully Sullenberger. Yeah. It was wild. But the, one of the first emails I sent him after that incident was, hey, Sully, um, in healthcare, they will listen to you now. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and he, you know, undoubtedly had a lot of demands on his time, but you were you were able to work with him. So maybe tell us a little bit about what you're able to do with him uh, to help bridge um, you know, aviation yeah. safety to patient safety and to lean. Well, what happened was he he contacted me a few months later and said, "Hey, he's been uh, some people in healthcare indeed had been asking him to speak, and um, he doesn't forget his friends. I mean, he could have worked with anyone." And he asked if I would uh, help him create this healthcare speech. We'll put in some lean elements and some elements of all the things, of course, that he knows about um, safety, framing it from the aviation standpoint. So it was a real mental exercise for me to drop in healthcare examples, but re reform it um, to his way of thinking in aviation safety. So I learned a lot helping him write his, his um, speech. And, you know, from from that speech and and those connections, um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about the pieces that you think are complementary. I mean, there, there's checklists that we've talked about a lot on my blog, and I think people have read Dr. Atul Gawande's book. Um, there, there's more to it than just the the checklist itself for that methodology. Can you kind of share your thoughts on that? Sure. Yeah, um, the three points that Sully makes in his speech and the three points you'll, if you talk to any airline pilot, they'll let you know what the three elements of aviation safety are. Number one is a non-punitive national reporting system like the aviation safety reporting system. And I know that creates a great deal of turmoil and heartburn, uh, because medicine has so many ad hoc and unconnected ways to report a problem. Aviation just has one and anybody can report. Or, or people in healthcare don't report the problem. Because, because it's not non-punitive or it is punitive, right? They'll get punished. And the idea, the idea behind healthcare is we're going to tally these mistakes and meet out punishment. And for the last 30 years, the ASRS has, uh, had as its, as its, uh, guide that, no, we're using this information. It's, it's gathered not by the FAA, which is sort of like the police arm. It's gathered by NASA which is a, a neutral organization that gathers the data and feeds it back. And it creates patterns. It creates a way to learn from things. It informs their training, their checklists, and everything else. So it's um, it's a super important missing piece. And I'm not sure how far um, we can get without a way to report and learn to see if we're even doing things better. Um, but that's that was number one with, with aviation. Then the second thing is something all lean people will understand, and that is standardized work. Now, what they call it is crew resource management, and they use that um, term to encompass standardized work, checklists, and uh, and so forth. And the idea that the captain is no longer the cowboy or the god, but that everybody on the crew shares responsibility for a successful outcome. So it's not just a matter, Mark, of getting, uh, let's say, the nurse to speak up and not be afraid to speak up to say, gee, doctor, I think such and so. It's so much deeper than that. They are now expected to speak up. It's your responsibility to speak up if you see something that's out of the ordinary. So um, th this is a huge shift. Uh, my, when my husband was first flying, you know, he could remember um, actually carrying a little notebook in his in his breast pocket with all the different captains' preferences. 
Um, so that's, that's, and, and, and calling a captain on something or requesting something or pointing something out could have resulted in termination. So that is the culture change that's happened in aviation. It's very sweeping and, and very incredible. So once you do that and you have these, this reporting mechanism, you then have the wherewithal to standardize processes. Now the, the checklist, I think is, uh, I, I think it's very encouraging to see the checklist being adopted in healthcare. The thing I think uh, people need to stop and, and think about is what it, what is the checklist is really not an artifact. It's kind of like lean in general. Lean is not a thing. It's a philosophy. Right. And a checklist is the same kind of thing. It summarizes the most critical, non-skippable steps. It's not a grocery list of procedures. It's not a to-do list. It's only the most critical items. Everyone can agree on a standardized procedure, highlight those most critical items. It formalizes best practices. It encourages communication and leadership. It does all kinds of things. It, it encourages um, best behavior, best practices, and so forth. It, people worry that it's going to make you a robot. But you and I know, and, and, and all lean practitioners know this, it's standardization that supports flexibility. You have to spend all your efforts on critical things like landing on the Hudson, which, you know, medically, doctors and nurses have to land on the Hudson from time to time. Mm-hmm. So having standardized procedures to fall back on frees up your mind to work on the critical thing in front of you. Yeah. Well, and I believe I, in hearing Sully recount the story, there there was no checklist that they could pull out to say, here's how you land a plane on the Hudson River. But there were a number of checklists that they did go through. Um, trying, you know, how to restart the engines and a, a number of checklists that it seemed like they, you know, the, the Sully and his first officer had to stitch together. That was their professional creativity and experience of knowing what checklist to go to, it seemed. Yes, yes, that's true. And they, and now as a result of the experience there where the first officer was doing the, the restart, trying to restart, restart, restart this engine, which was toast. You know, they could not restart this. Yeah. It was no matter how well he did that checklist or how perfectly he executed it or how quickly all of which he did, that engine was not going to restart. And so now they're going back through that incident and saying, what is there more we could have learned? Is there some signal that could have told that first officer right away, give up on this checklist and go on to the next one. So they, even, even the successful um, emergencies, they analyze and analyze and create more learning from it. Well, we, we can come back to checklists here, but you had mentioned that there were three points. Um, first being non-punitive reporting, second being standardized work and, and CRM. What's the third point? The third point has to do with culture change. And um, I I mean, if I can use the aviation example, although it, it, some people may consider it kind of tired, but in 1977, there was the, the terrible disaster in Tenerife. Over 500 people were killed that day. Uh, when two gigantic airplanes collided, ironically, on the ground. Um, now, as a result of that, they did a tremendous amount of learning, and they discovered that so so toxic was the culture in the cockpit of the KLM airplane that it's quite apparent that the first officer knew something was wrong, and it's quite apparent that even the second officer suspected that there was an airplane on the runway. They weren't sure that it wasn't there, and yet... They spoke up once, they spoke up again, and the captain dismissed and dismissed them. There was no way for them to pull the end on cord. There was no way for them to stop what was going on. And they consented their way into it. They knew that if they were wrong, they'd be in trouble. And if they were right, they could die. So um, based on those sorts of 
observations about the, the, the feeling in the cockpit, the aviation industry did a lot of soul searching and said, this has to change. We can't have the captain God cowboy anymore. We have to, um, we have to create a more cooperative environment in the, in the cockpit. And that is when, um, the culture change began in the cockpit. Now it extends farther than that. Um, Safety now must be seen as a core business function. So all managers have a stake in the safe performance and, and outcomes of what happens. So it's a costly thing to implement. You know, are we going to have safety be a core business function? Are we going to really put employees on the value side of the ledger? Mm-hmm. If we really do those things, it's going to be expensive. But then Sully calls the question, as, as many people have called the question, what's the cost of not implementing right. this? Well, and... You look and you study the culture that used to be there in aviation. You know, it's interesting to see that, you know, somebody, you know, first officer would not speak up even though their life was on the line. I mean, it's maybe a, a, you know, it runs the risk of being a tired analogy. So, you know, the difference between pilots and surgeons, you know, highly skilled, highly trained, highly responsible and respected professionals is that the pilots have skin in the game, if you will. You know, surgeons walk away, um, you know, from, from surgical errors. Um, but even with that life on the line, you know, your own life on the line, that a culture could be so debilitating and preventing people from to speak up. That's, I think, an interesting thing to think about when we consider the cultures in, in healthcare or other organizations. That's right. And the, the other thing people like to point out is that um, pilots have hundreds of lives in their hands at a time and physicians have one at a time. Um, and, and even, and even so, this toxic culture had been allowed to develop. But I, I have to say over the last 30 years since the Tenerife disaster, um, aviation safety has improved. Your, your odds of dying in an airplane crash are, are, are minuscule compared to even what they were 30 years ago, which was, was quite small. So, um, improvement is possible. And I, but my hope is, is that we're able to figure out some way, some, some really legitimate way to have a non-gaming, mm-hmm. um, reporting system and and real standardization and uh, really making safety a core business function. And one other thing, uh, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on back to checklists and culture. Um, you, it's funny, funny here you call it an artifact and you think of, you know, a factory or a hospital even that goes and just says, you know, we're, we're going to take this artifact called 5S and go use this single tool. But out of context, um, it, it maybe doesn't help or maybe causes different problems. I mean, what, what would you surmise would happen? Or maybe you, you know of, you know, experiences where, you know, a hospital just, you know, drafted a checklist or, you know, bought a checklist and, and just dropped it into place as a tool. Um, what, what are some of the problems that might result if that doesn't fit with the culture and the, maybe the needed culture change? Well, it's not going to work. <clears throat> it simply won't work. It's just another thing, man. It's just like you said, when it's dropped in out of context, it's not easy or instinctive to, to run a checklist. Um, one of the things a, a, a doctor came up to my husband after one of my talks and he said, do you mean to tell me that the minute you run into trouble, the first thing you do is you reach for a checklist? And my husband looked at him and said, yeah, that is the first thing we do. Well, that's not the instinctive thing to do when you're in trouble. Right. So it has to be part of your training. It has to be so ingrained. So if you drop in a checklist, it's going to, uh, the, the predictable thing is what I've heard happens where the doctors go, I, I don't want to do this. 
And there's no culture that where, where the um, surrounding people say, oh, well, doctor, this is how we do things around here. Right. So it's, there's no, nothing to support it. And so it can't, it can't survive. The other thing is, as you know, we support what we create. And if people have a hand in, in the creation of that checklist, it's far more likely to be done. This yes. Is, so those kinds yeah. of thoughts, those kinds of activities are very congruent with me. Yeah. And, and that was, I thought, a very strong point in Dr. Gwande's book that people have to develop their own checklist. And that is, I think, a perfect parallel to standardized work. And if you go back to the writings of Taiichi Ono saying people who do the work need to develop their own standardized work. And somehow I think in the U.S., it's somehow gotten, you know, twisted to the point where, you know, an expert or a manager writes the standardized work and then throws it at people. And you know, it's, it's natural to see why there would be um, discomfort with that. Yeah. It's like, here you go. Here's your standardized work. <laughs> that doesn't yeah. work. Well, you know, I have a, a friend of mine here in Dallas who's a pilot and he does some of this training where they teach teams how to develop a checklist. And he cringes when you know he knows that, you know, other hospitals might go and just, you know, buy a checklist and drop it in place that, I mean, it seems seems pretty intuitive why that wouldn't work, but it seems like people are tempted to take that shortcut or, you know, they don't realize to the points you're making here, why that's not going to work. Well, I think there is a tremendous opening, a, a tremendous um, opportunity between aviation, the, the world of aviation and the world of medicine. And I know um, people get tired of hearing it. They want to throw stones at it. Airplanes aren't uh, hospitals. We heard it with two cars, aren't cars, aren't people. But there really are ideas that can and should be flowing freely between these two disciplines because, um, as Sully points out in his speech, um, pilots have paid for 30 years to develop these ideas, and they've paid with blood. Wow. I mean, that, that's that's a powerful point. And, it, and it, I guess it goes to show that this isn't an overnight change. No culture change is going to happen immediately, right? Right. right. Now, um, maybe what's one other question that comes to mind, uh, you talk about how Sully, you know, before the landing on the Hudson had talked about wanting to start a business. Has, has he indeed started that business? Is he working with hospitals now? Uh, he's, he's delivered a number of healthcare addresses. As you can imagine, his life has taken such an unexpected turn. Mm -hmm. He is in demand in a lot of different ways, healthcare being but one. Um, of course, my my fond hope is that he will end up devoting more and more time to healthcare. But right now he's just a busy guy. Yeah. And he's still flying, right? No, he, oh. he did. He did retire. He went back on the line. He flew for a while and then retired. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I'm sure that must've been reassuring uh, to people who were boarding, or maybe it was a distraction to see, Oh wow. Sully <laughs> is my captain today. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, well, there were lots and lots of skilled pilots. I mean, I, he is truly among the elite, but um, there are plenty of skilled people out there, and there's so much expertise that could be um, could be used. Well, Nada, I want to thank you for sharing both you know, a little bit about your background and you know that that great coincidence of um, running across uh, Captain Sully, uh, Captain Sullenberger, a couple of times in your life, and uh, appreciate you being able to share some of the perspectives. Um, with us here on the podcast. Well, thanks, Mark. It's been great to talk with you. And as a preview uh, for people who are listening today, um, Nada and I are also going to have another podcast in the future. Maybe just give us a quick preview um, about a trip that you uh, that you were able to take to Cuba.
Well, it actually involves another of my contacts from Pittsburgh. It's an organization called Global Links. And their mission is, uh, for the last uh, 20 years, has been to offer equipment and supplies to countries in Latin America. But they're now expanding that to offer lean training so that they can get more out of their the supplies that are being sent. So we've recently uh, done some lean training in Havana, and I have some interesting uh, insights into that. Well, and so we'll have to leave that as a tease for the future episodes. <laughs> Sorry to do that to you, uh, to the listeners, but uh, please do tune in and subscribe uh, to the podcast feed through iTunes or, or through other ways. You can go to leanpodcast.org to be able to hear that next upcoming episode with Nada. So nice talking to you, Nada. I'm glad you could join us. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.